Welcome to the Frontlines of Freedom podcast, and I'm your host, Pastor Ivan Mawarire. I'm also the Director of Education at the Renew Democracy Initiative. Some years ago, I became a democracy activist in the nation of Zimbabwe. Unfortunately, for years, I was jailed and tortured for demanding better governance. My experiences, though, brought me to believe that life has a call to action. And no matter how short or long or how rich or poor it can be, there is still a use of it just beyond living it for ourselves. Like we get to love others, to defend causes. We get to serve the weak or those that are struggling. We get to bring joy to other people and even to other creatures around us. The way to look at our contribution to this world, whatever we choose that contribution to be, is not as a chore, but as an opportunity. We don't have to be kind, but we get to be kind. We don't have to speak up for the freedoms of other people. We get to speak up for them. This is kind of what the core of my conversation with my next guest is about. It's about the things that we choose to care about in our lifetime. And he started when he was very young. Join us. Today we talk to a pretty unique individual, Sunny Cheung. He's a Hong Kong activist and a politician. And as you get to know his story, you realize that he's a towering figure for democracy and freedom in Hong Kong and beyond. He's the former spokesman for the Hong Kong Higher Institutions International Affairs Delegation. But notably, he is someone who started out in the world of activism very young. He started out by participating in the Umbrella Revolution of 2014 and the 2019 to 2020 Hong Kong protests. Who is this courageous youth who dared to defy the Chinese government? Sunny, welcome to the front lines of freedom. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for having me. It's my really my honor to be here and talk to you. Sunny, I I want to walk with you through the journey of your work, uh, the amazing things that you've been involved in up to now as you are now exiled in the United States. Where did this journey begin? Because you're, you're one of the things that stands out about you is how young you are. How did this journey begin? Yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, I really started my activism um, 10 years ago. In 2012, I was like, I mean, 14 or 15 years old. And then I was still, I mean, just entered high school. And then um, something happened, I mean, in Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong government, I mean, um, of course, I mean, this is not democratic. Um, our chief executive is not elected by people. So, um, the Hong Kong government has long been manipulated by the, uh, Beijing government for a while. However, in 2012, the government unprece- unprecedentedly wanted to introduce a new education curriculum. And by that curriculum, they call that national education. The curriculum was really problematic. Basically, it was all about the Hong Kong government and Beijing government collectively wanted to brainwash the whole generation 
they want to erase the history uh, of the dark side uh, of the Communist Party in China. So they mentioned nothing regarding the uh, June 4th massacre back in 1989. They talk very little regarding um, the, the uh, very human uh, humanitarian crisis uh, back in China. They only know how to worship the Beijing government. That's why many young Hong Kong people, they were angry. So I... I mean, I, I stood up and tried to protest, and that was my starting point. So this is, you were 14, maybe 15 years old, and the Chinese government is trying to introduce an education curriculum, and it really is not a curriculum for Hong Kong nationals. It's about brainwashing people with Chinese propaganda. Is this what you're saying? Yes, I mean, unfortunately, yes. What makes you do this at 14 years old? I, I, I'm trying to figure out... What is going on in your mind? How you find yourself involved in rejecting this curriculum when you're 14? How did that come about? I think when I was small, I had a relatively good family education. My parents always told me that we should not, we should not match uh, the regime to control the history. So, I mean, when I was small, I was reading a lot of um, history books. And then I read about the Chinese history. I read about the dark side of the Chinese Communist Party. So I understand what happened in the past. And the reason why we have to learn history, especially in a more authentic way, is because if you know nothing regarding the history, and then you will, I mean, repeat doing the wrong thing in the history. So I think since I was small, I, I already find that I was so into history and I care about history. So when the, when the Hong Kong government told the public that they are going to, I mean, change the history narrative and discourse, I think this is something quite unacceptable to me. I have to, 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 I mean, stand against this kind of reform. Sunny, there, there are people who are listening to our podcast who may not know the history between the Chinese government and Hong Kong. Would you give us a very brief picture of what the relationship between the Chinese government and Hong Kong is? Where did that start and what has been the situation over the years? Yeah, um, thank you for bringing this. I mean, I, I totally agree that, I mean, uh, people might not uh, understand the history of Hong Kong and, and, and China, right? And for many people, perhaps, I mean, Hong Kong uh, is a part of China and that uh, really confuse people why Hong Kong becomes so, I mean, rebellious. What is the special relation or history between these two places? Hong Kong was a British colony. I mean, because decades and centuries ago, previous uh, Beijing government, uh, the Qing dynasty, they lost to a war, right, to the British people. They have to borrow the whole uh, Hong Kong island, the Hong Kong to the British. So for 100 years, Hong Kong was under the government of British government. So back in the colonial period, we didn't have a democracy either. We didn't have that. However, we have a certain a certain level of freedom. We can have, have our own government, own administration, own culture. Even we have our own economy, economy policy. We have our own currency. And also, of course, we have our own uh, spoken language that differentiate us from mainland China. So Hong Kong uh, has been a really special uh, place, especially when decades ago, when the Communist Party in China, they still had a, a very difficult time uh, in China, which actually millions of people also 
suffer to death. I mean, uh, back in the 1960s or, or 70s. However, compared with mainland China, Hong Kong, uh, by that time was under the British control. And we had a relatively stable period of time. We, we avoid this kind of political chaos in mainland China. We can, uh, develop our economy. We can develop our own society. So we de- develop in a very rapid way and we become our nowadays Hong Kong as an international business hub. But however, in 1997, uh, Hong Kong was handed over back to the Beijing government. Actually, after 1989, uh, when the June 4th massacre happened in Beijing, many Hong Kong people were already very worried about the future of Hong Kong. They were worried about if we are handed over back to China, our political freedom, our rule of law, uh, will all be gone. Um, that's why people are uh, quite uh, pessimistic after 1997. And in fact, after 1997, we witnessed, I mean, how Beijing really tried to uh, undermine our autonomy and try to infringe uh, the human rights and uh, uh, the human dignity of individuals in Hong Kong. And that's why you can see so many movements uh, were outbreaking uh, in the previous years just to protest against the Chinese government and want to fight for an authentic uh, democratic election. The fight for democracy and freedom is not something that is new to the citizens of Hong Kong. People have been fighting for their freedom uh, or at least for their own democracy for a long time. You are right, you are right. Um, actually, I mean, back in 2003, right after the handover, six years after the handover, in 2003, and then there were like, I mean, 500,000 Hong Kong people were marching on the street. You, you have to know that, I mean, when we were talking about 500,000 Hong Kong people, actually the population in Hong Kong is just around 7 million Hong Kong people. So actually we have a really huge portion of Hong Kong people, they were already doing this kind of social protest back in 2003. And I was like five or six years only. And in 2003, because the Hong Kong government, they wanted to introduce a new version of national security law. And Hong Kong people were really uh, scared because they understand that Beijing government, the Chinese government, they always have a different definition of national security. They can arrest people arbitrarily I mean, if you say something very pro-democracy and they will hate it and they will steam, uh, they will consider this kind of speech or behaviors as provocative or even subversive. 500,000 Hong Kong people already marched in 2003. So yeah, you're right. I mean, Hong Kong people has a legacy and tradition to protest against this kind of um, repression, against this kind of illiberal order. Here you are, you are you are now 14, 15, and this new curriculum is being introduced. You join the resistance of this new curriculum, and that introduces you to a life of activism, a life of being politically engaged, and a life also of uh, becoming an enemy of the state. Tell me about how this carries on as you leave high school and you get into university. Tell me about how you get involved in activism uh, as a student on the campus. Back in 2014, two years after I joined um, the protest to, to against the uh, um, national education. So uh, two years after that, in 2014, 
uh, I became a college student. I joined the student union, and then I also joined the umbrella movement uh, back back then. And then I also became a student leader. I mean, gradually. I mean, in the uh, movement in Hong Kong, um, there is one thing that we should, I mean, mention or try to be mindful of is actually the legacy of the Hong Kong social movement. It's really, I mean, uh, initiated by young people and student unions in universities and colleges because um, Hong Kong people uh, previously are actually being accused of apolitical for many years uh, because Hong Kong people they they live in a international business hub, right? They they have a good living, they have a good material life. Many of them are uh, being a lawyer, doctor, or actually an uh, eye banker, so they have a good material life. They don't have to care about democracy, this kind of ontological idea, right? However, in 2014 and in 2019 movements, more and more Hong Kong people, they, they are awakening and they understand that despite this kind of material life, there are something we should pursue. And one reason that really enlightened and inspired them is actually the effort and endeavors from the younger generation. For the younger generation, perhaps we, we are more idealistic, you may say. However, it's because we are really passionate about bringing social changes. We don't want to see our society and autonomy being controlled by the Communist Party. We have a lot of student unions. We have a very robust student movement. In 2014, the Umbrella Movement was led by student leaders. Yeah, I, I, I was part of that. I joined that and became a more high-profile activist in the society. And that's my story. And in 2019, of course, I also, I mean, based on the student uh, unions, I tried to do more further for Hong Kong. But that is another story, yeah. So the student unions and the student movement in Hong Kong is very vibrant. And this is what led the Umbrella Movement. Tell us about the Umbrella Movement. W what was it about? Why is it called the Umbrella Movement? And what kind of actions did you do? Basically, uh, when we witnessed uh, the, uh, the Hong Kong protests in recent years, we observed that a lot of uh, police brutality going on. So um, in 2014, uh, in September of 2014, when many Hong Kong protesters, actually, they, especially the young ones, they were fighting for an authentic universal suffrage, uh, 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 election to elect our city's leader. However, Beijing government blocked it. And that really violated the Sino-British Joint Declaration because when, uh, when the British government hand over Hong Kong back to China, the Chinese government actually promised that also that is also, uh, enlisted in our basic law. Uh, which is our, I mean, merely uh, constitution law, something mm. like that. There will be universal suffrage. There will be democratic election. So we have been fighting for that according to our own uh, version of uh, constitution. However, Beijing in 2014, they block it. They say that, I mean, yeah, we can have uh, election. However, this kind of election has to be controlled by the CCP. So that means this is not a true and authentic election. So people... Marching, protesting on the street, millions of Hong Kong people there. But one day, uh, actually, the, I mean, uh, the protest was really peaceful, totally peaceful, right? But one day, uh, the Hong Kong police uh, was being ordered to fire tear gas to disperse the crowd. And that's why people use um, umbrella to defend themselves uh, from the tear gas and proper space uh, from the Hong Kong police force. So that's why this becomes a really symbolic 
an image uh, of Hong Kong movement that many people in the world is well known of. So yeah, I mean, this is how the umbrella things I mean, appears. The umbrella which became a a symbol uh, for the for the movement was really a tool that uh, young people had used to defend themselves against the attacks that were happening. That's actually quite amazing. As you then engaged this process as a student, you began to think more and more about getting involved in in changing Hong Kong. Walk us through that change where you began to think about running for public office. And I, I, I may be missing some information in between here, but tell me about what it was like to face the authorities in Hong Kong, whether you were under surveillance, whether you were arrested, uh, you know, the, the usual things that come with this space. I want to hear about that and then hear about your decision to then uh, move into, into running for public office. So in 2019, I, I mean, become, because I became a more prominent and leading activist in Hong Kong, uh, because I did a lot of international advocacy, I testified in the U.S. Congress. So I became more well-known uh, uh, in the Hong Kong society. And by that time, my friend, uh, which... Uh, is also a very prominent, internationally well-known activist, Joshua Wong. Uh, he invited me to form an alliance, the one for the public office. I mean, as a member of the younger generation society, right, we have the obligation, we have the duty to bring in social changes. And also, we should not uh, waste the human capital and social capital we accumulate in the movement. Because I went to so many countries to do advocacy. I know so many politicians. So we, I, I, I also, I also feel like I should uh, utilize another, uh, uh, platform, which is the public domain to amplify my voices. I should use my resources to do something for Hong Kong to do it more better. So I decided, of course, I mean, to run for the office. Um, in Hong Kong in 2020, I, I joined the pro-democracy, uh, primaries election. And that was the largest primaries in Hong Kong history, which 600,000 Hong Kong people voted. And I, I, I won in the election and become, uh, one of the representative of the whole pro-democracy camp. However, the government, uh, they, they, they really consider this kind of primaries, uh, is quite illegal and they arrested all the people. And I, I mean, fortunately, I fled Hong Kong, I mean, uh, uh, timely, uh, in time. So I, I can still talk about Hong Kong in other countries and societies. But you are right. I mean, uh, during the, that process from being an activist to become a more outspoken and, and, and famous politician or activist, a lot of harassment, a lot of, um, intimidation happened in my life. Uh, not just on me, but also against my family's, uh, partner and, and friends. And that is quite, I mean, um, something I will never forget. Yeah. Sunny, we forget how old you were when you, when you ran for public office. And it still strikes me as being very, very impressive. Uh, how old were you when you decided that you were going to put your hand up and you ran for the elections and you won the primaries? How old were you then? Actually, it was just two years ago. I, I was um, 24 by that time. You're t- a 24-year-old, you're running for public office. 
the repression begins, the brutality begins, the pressure on your family begins, and then you have to make a difficult decision to, to leave Hong Kong. Tell me how you, how you, how you felt about making that decision and, 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 and how you eventually left in terms of uh, just, you know, arriving at the decision that, that you could no longer be there. I was really depressed and frustrated when I uh, knew that I have to flee my motherland. I have to um, leave the hometown that I grew up for my entire life. I, I was really, I mean, frustrated about that. But I mean, the situation makes me no choice. I mean, um, because after I won in the primaries, uh, like one month later, I found out actually so many national security police, um, they were uh, actually, I mean, chasing me, fishing me, and they, uh, they are going to arrest me. They are going to arrest mm. me for my papers, uh, activism, because I did a lot of international advocacy, because I did a lot of activism and I joined the primaries and became an elected representative uh, that can really, I mean, have the people support and popular support. And that's why they target on me. And one day in the morning when I left my home, I was actually planning to, I mean, to have a meeting as usual. I mean, to talk with my team uh, about, I mean, what, 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 what to do, uh, what, what was the next move for the Hong Kong political uh, future, right? I, I was trying to have a strategizing meeting. However, when I left home, when I left my home, of course, I already realized so many police were my downstairs waiting for me. So I understood that I have to make the decision within an hour to decide whether or not I should leave. And eventually, I decided to leave just within an hour. So, I mean, I mean, literally, I abandoned all the, all the, all my, I mean, personal belongings, my family, my partner and friends in Hong Kong to immediately, um, to go to the airport to, 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 to leave Hong Kong. So the whole journey was really horrifying and it's not easy for me to digest this kind of uh, experience not until now i mean so i think yeah it's a painful experience to become in itself because you left your hometown but that's why i will keep the fight going on uh in order to 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 amplify my voices and for hong kong Sunny, it, it it really is um just amazing to hear what you've given your life to talking about being uh, in exile i want to ask two things the first being what you have continued to do whilst uh, in exile in the U.S. for Hong Kong? Uh, uh, what activities have you have you gotten involved in? Because I know that this fight in you has not died. You may be away from home, but I know that you have been involved in many things to affect uh, Hong Kong and the future of Hong Kong's freedom. Tell us a little bit more about that. Currently, I based in I mean the U.S. Uh, in Washington D.C. So I, I have been always thinking this question too. I mean, what I can do and what I should do to help Hong Kong, right? So currently I do a lot of congressional advocacy on a daily basis, right? Uh, try to talk about the Hong Kong uh, situation, try to let more policymakers, um, in the capital, in state department, in government to understand Hong Kong. And we also try to have our own demands, uh, for the, uh, U.S. government to urge them, encourage them to um, help Hong Kong people to relocate um, to the U.S. Um, to seek asylum, and secondly, also try to do something to deter the China threat 
and the CCP influence uh, globally. I think that's something the U.S. government should definitely do. And also, I mean, on the other hand, despite this kind of congressional uh, efficacy, I will still, I mean, uh, as a leader in the uh, in the Hong Kong diaspora, I will still do a lot of community building and try to unite the Hong Kong people in the U.S. or even in the world. We try to show solidarity. We try to let uh, more people to understand the fight we are now having. In terms of the the citizens of the United States, when you look at their freedom and their democracy, what do you what do you see? What do you see of it? Are you do you have any concerns about it? The United States is a really complicated country, right? And that's why we try to uh, understand more about the dynamics and context. But I don't think um, it's really difficult. I think it's actually, uh, it's, it provides many opportunities for people like us to talk about our demands and voice our opinions. And especially, uh, we understand that, I mean, um, the rest, I mean, actually is a powerhouse uh, of democracy. So when we talk about we want to promote democracy and we want to counter the authoritarianism expansion in the world, we want to avoid democratic backlash in the world, I think definitely we have to engage and reach out to different stakeholders in this country and in other regions. Your perspective on the student movement in in America as compared to the student movement in Hong Kong, what do you what do you see when you if you if you were to draw parallels between the two? I think Hong Kong is quite a really unique case um, that might not be really I mean, applicable to other countries, at least not now. For example, when we talk about the, one of the fabric and foundation of a very resilient and robust Hong Kong democratic movement uh, is thanks to the tradition and legacy of student unions, this kind of organization in um, in Hong Kong, right? And when we talk about student unions, of course, um, the United States and other countries, they still have this kind of student unions, student groups. But generally speaking, I mean, this, the largest student union of uh, a college, of a, of a university, um, they are not that political in the U.S. or in other countries. Hong Kong uh, student unions in Hong Kong, the official student unions in Hong Kong are more political. They are really eager to drive social changes. They feel like this is their... Um, Obligation. I mean, despite of providing uh, just student welfare, we, we feel like we are ob- uh, obligated to provide uh, an atmosphere to cultivate student movement. So I think that, that is one of the differences. However, I think, of course, I mean, there are still many student groups. Um, there are more and more st- uh, uh, student groups. Uh, they are also growing uh, in their scale, in terms of their scale, to focus more on uh, political issue. For example, in the U.S., there are a lot of student groups that they focus on climate change and also uh, different kind of progressive ideas and also human rights mm. issues. But I don't think we witness uh, many student groups that um, exclusively focus on China or other authoritarian regimes, and that is alarming. So I feel like I mean we should do more to talk to the uh, next generation of uh, of the U.S. society. We not we need to talk to more young Americans to let them know more about the dang- the danger of this kind of authoritarianism. I, I think that for me is probably one of the most powerful things that people like you and me could say to those who live in the free world. Myself having been involved in building a citizens movement in Zimbabwe and ending up in prison uh, for it many occasions. 
And when I hear your story of, of standing up and speaking truth to power as a young person and then being hounded for it, but then continuing the advocacy for your nation, even in exile, I'm amazed at the kind of message that we carry. And I'm excited that you are getting plugged in and you are finding ways to continue the conversation about Hong Kong, but to also continue the conversation about the rise of authoritarianism globally. If you had just a few seconds to speak to the American public about their democracy, what advice would you give them? Don't take democracy for granted. Don't take uh, liberty for granted. People from authoritarian societies, people who suffer under autocratic regime, we know, we understand that freedom, liberty, democracies are something very invaluable and that we need to continually to fight for and try to sustain it. Because sometimes, I mean, dictatorship and authoritarians are really wicked and, and toxic in a way that they will really uh, corrupt and, 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 and try to undermine our uh, institution. And we need to be mindful mm. of that. So don't take it for granted and let's join the fight together. Uh, this is not just our fight. This is also your fight. Sunny, it's been refreshing talking to you, my friend, and hearing your story and just being amazed at how you have taken up the fight for your nation personally and how you have devoted your life uh, to that and even starting out at the tender age of 14. I want to thank you so much for being with us here today. And I know that you and I will keep in touch and that front lines of freedom and uh, yourself and many of your uh, comrades will do some work together in telling the world to value their freedom, but also in standing in solidarity with you. So thank you so much for being with us here today, Sunny. Thank you so much, Ivan, and thank you all. You've been listening to a conversation between myself and Sunny Shewung, a, a, a political activist, a democracy activist, a freedom advocate from Hong Kong. And uh, he's only 26 this year, started out on this journey as an activist at the age of 14 and standing up to probably one of the biggest authoritarian regimes on the face of the earth. And we want to pay homage to himself and uh, to his many friends and family who continue to hold up the light of freedom, hold up the light of hope that we can do it as a people, that we can fight for our freedoms and that we can, we can get those, those freedoms in our lifetime. Thank you so much for joining us and hopefully you'll join us again on the front lines of freedom as we talk to people who are changing the world. Goodbye.